Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. We hear an awful lot about science these days from public health, politicians, regulators, educators, activists, corporations, family, friends, and even neighbors. It's endless and exhausting. But the question is, can we trust the science and all the people peddling it? If you ask a supporter of safer nicotine products such as vaping, the answer would be a resounding no. Joining us today to discuss the battle over science in the race to end smoking is Dr. Ian Furon, an independent research scientist with a PhD in cardiovascular physiology and years of industry experience as head of clinical research at British American Tobacco, BAT, and as senior director of clinical and regulatory affairs at Jewel Labs. Dr. Furon, thanks for joining us today on RegWatch. Thanks for having me, Brent. You're based in the UK and many observers say the UK has the most enlightened approach to nicotine vaping. Is it the nirvana it's made out to be? I I think in some ways it is, Brent. And I I think if you asked me that question a few years ago, I would have said 100% yes. And I think that's changed a little bit. But if we just go back a few years, you know, we had a a history of tobacco control in the UK, uh, born out of the the laboratory of Professor Michael Russell in in London, uh, and a whole load of academics who were supportive of vaping uh, and reduced risk tobacco products and the health benefits they can bring to smokers. We have pragmatic regulation and we have a supportive government and a, a supportive national health system. But I think in the last two years, this has changed a little bit and we now have a government consultation and we may well see negative outcomes from that consultation. We've seen an explosion of use use of vaping products and I really think we need to bring that back under control before it does cause regulatory uh, problems in the UK. And we can't let the great work that the UK academic community has done in the past 50 years to go up in smoke. Tell us more about your background in research science and how did that lead to you working for Big Tobacco? Well, I've always been interested in understanding the mechanistic basis for human disease with the ultimate hope that this understanding will bring new treatments to market and help those who are most in need. And working in Big Tobacco as a scientist, trying to help bring reduced harm nicotine products to the market, that's the same principle, though, of course, it's slightly more indirect. But the more we can do to bring these potentially life-saving products to market, and the more that I could do to help support that, the more we can do to improve individual and population-level health. And, and there are strong headwinds, you know, including the declining perceptions of vapes amongst consumers and the medical community, But the more data that scientists like myself put into the debate, the better the outcome is going to be for everybody concerned. Now, we're going to obviously dig in more into the issues around the troubles in the UK. We've covered it a lot here over the last year, year and a half. But generally, should governments support nicotine vaping products in the effort to end smoking? Absolutely. And and I think they, they certainly should. And we generally do see that in the UK. But governments, I don't think, can do it on their own. They need the support of scientists. They need the support of uh, a legitimate industry, legitimate manufacturers. And the evidence is becoming more clear that vaping vaping products can help smokers stop smoking, and to a greater degree than drug products prescribed by physicians or bought in pharmacies. 
And evidence is building that the benefits that individual smokers experience when they switch away from cigarette smoking to using a vaping product in terms of their indicators of their chances of developing a disease in the future, we're seeing immense benefits. And this will likely improve in the future as companies bring innovations to the market, which have an even cleaner aerosol and which are more satisfying to smokers. So I, I think the outlook is good, but we do need permissive regulation. And as you say, we really do need governmental support to make that happen. So in your opinion, why is the topic around vaping so heated? I, I, I can only think that it stems from the heated debate of tobacco control from years and decades ago in which the, one of the only ways of tackling the problem of cigarette smoking was to beat up big tobacco and partly to beat up cigarette smokers as well. And at the time, beating big tobacco made sense. They're selling deadly products. We need to eliminate those products. We should eliminate the companies that make and sell them. But I think that that ethos of beating up the industry has been extended to the vaping industry, which, let's be clear, is more than just big tobacco. It's startups, it's small independent bait shops and manufacturers, and it's a community of consumers helping other smokers to stop smoking. But that rhetoric and the ethos has just been extended to the broader vaping industry. And I, I think that underpins why the UK debate has become a little more heated and is changing. Youth use, as I mentioned, is on the rise and the legitimate industry is being blamed. But the reality, though, is that youth use is being driven predominantly by an illicit trade, and we really do need to clamp down on this. And nobody in tobacco control seems to want to suggest that we should clamp down on illicit trade, but instead they really want to punish the legitimate industry and eradicate it in order to meet their nicotine prohibition goals. Now, it does seem that for the first time ever, anti-vaping uh, opponents or vaping opponents in the UK really found traction with the disposables issue, with the battery and the environmental and the waste issue. And then of course, you know, the teen vaping issue. I absolutely agree with that. And we have seen that, you know, advocates who have been very pro-vaping uh, have, have really had to battle in their engagements with the UK government to try and persuade them to leave the market as is when the, the evidence is clear that there is a problem which needs to be combated. So how does that square then with the government taking, you know, major action like the stop to, uh, swap to stop program? I, I mean, it's an interesting question. And, and I think the swap to stop scheme was developed long before this issue of youth vaping became an issue. And, and I think it also highlights, your, your point highlights the, the segregation of the two sides of the debate. You know, one side is the benefit that vapes can provide to adult smokers in terms of helping them stop and reducing their health risk. And the initiation threat of youth use coming into the uh, tobacco and nicotine product category through the their use of the ubiquitous disposable vapes that we have in the UK at the moment. And I think those two arguments, it's, it's hard to combine them and provide a simple single solution. And I do think we have to uh, separate those two, pro those two uh, issues. Uh, and, and I think the swap to stop scheme does do that. It separates the smoking cessation issue from the, the youth initiation issue. The way that I would see this is, is that very little is being done to uh, find out where young people are getting their vapes from. I, I think it's so easy to run a survey on kids in the UK 
and find out that 10% of them are past 30-day users of electronic cigarettes. But I think you could delve deeper and you could find out in your surveys, where are they getting them from? How much are they paying for them? Who is who is providing them to them? Are they getting them from supermarkets or off-licenses or car boot sales? Where are they getting them from? And I think then if, if you delineate the source, then you can begin to tackle the problem. But I just don't see that there is a desire to find out what the source is. So therefore, implicitly, there's no desire to correctly tackle the problem. Well, as Clive Bates would say, you know, public health tobacco control specifically needs the crisis to continue to perpetuate the tobacco control system. Possibly so. And I think my biggest concern when I, when I think logically about what may happen if the government does provide stricter regulations on vaping products is that there are now a, a group of young people in the United Kingdom that are addicted to nicotine. And if they can't easily buy vapes, will they buy cigarettes, which are just as easy to get as disposable vapes are now? And that then would feed into the, the, the whole ideology of tobacco control, that vapes are a gateway into cigarette smoking, despite the fact that it was uh, the government and, and stricter regulations that caused that shift into tobacco smoking uh, and away from, from vaping. But isn't that the interesting thing about the data that's been coming out over the last couple of years? We've got a cohort of people who are in 22, 23, 24 years old that were around at the height of the youth vaping crisis back in 2018, 2019, and now they're adults. And the smoking rates of those young people in their early 20s has collapsed. I, I agree with that completely. And, and I think the, the only real answer to that question is that the, the youth use issue in the UK, it, it's a new problem. It, it's a, it's a two-year-old problem. So I think, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-olds using vaping products, we won't know for another three or four years whether that has translated uh, into a, uh, a cigarette smoking gateway problem. Uh, so, so we just have to wait and see what the data tells us. But I think I, I do have a fear that if, if vaping products are made much more difficult to get hold of, then other sources of nicotine will be, will be utilized by kids. Dr. Fearon, let me ask you for your scientific opinion about nicotine vaping. Is it a safer alternative to smoking? Undoubtedly, and, and I don't think any sane person would try and tell you that uh, that vaping is equal, or equally, or as harmful as cigarette smoking. And, and you don't have to listen to to my opinion on that. You can read the U.S. NASM reports or the UK uh, Public Health England and OHID reports, and these are great examples of what the scientific literature as a whole tells us. And I think we also look at emissions from modern vaping products and compare them to cigarette smoke. And we see that the harms of vaping are likely to be massively reduced compared with the harms of cigarette smoking because the users are inhaling far, far lower levels of, of toxic chemicals. And if I'm completely honest, the 95% number that's often used to describe how less harmful vaping products are is probably doing modern vaping products a disservice. A lot of modern vapes have unquantifiable levels of toxic chemicals. And through innovation, this can only be improved, that we're continuously driving down the levels of toxic chemicals in emissions from vaping products. So I think that, you know, they are less harmful. It's what the evidence shows us. There is, of course, the addiction issue. And regardless of what form people use nicotine, nicotine can be addictive. 
But data from my own work and from other studies on the addiction and dependence caused by vaping products shows that it's likely to be less than the dependence on combustible cigarette smoking. And finally, you know, nicotine does have some cardiovascular effects. It increases your heart rate. It increases your blood pressure. Although these are very transient, and I've yet to see any strong evidence that this increase in heart rate and blood pressure leads to cardiovascular diseases such as atherosclerosis. So without a doubt, they are absolutely less harmful. And I think we just need to make more people aware of that fact. Yeah, it, I've heard often uh, from people that says that that 95% less harmful is actually very conservative, too conservative. Oh, and I, I, I agree with that completely. And I, and I think, you know, the 95% number is a decade old now, you know, and, and the world has moved on. Innovation has created better vaping products with lower levels of emissions, uh, with better quality control. And I think that 95% number could be updated. And I, I think it would be 98, 99% even if we were we were to take a look at the data that we have available now. You know, when it comes to nicotine, through the years that I was a smoker, over 25 years, and, you know, um, at my age, you know, I was fully through the 80s and 90s and 2000s, understanding and very conscious of the, the tobacco wars. And rarely did I ever hear from a public health position, at least, that nicotine was the great evil. I, I know. It, it, it is quite amazing. I think the difference here in the UK is uh, anti-smoking adverts, which were put on in, uh, in between TV programs when kids are watching television. When I was a kid, uh, had a, an evil character called Nicotine, and there was a superhero uh, that dealt with uh, Nicotine. Uh, and, and, you know, that enshrines in people's minds that nicotine is potentially dangerous. And, and the, the most bizarre thing is that physicians believe that nicotine causes cancer and causes heart disease. Yet each and every day they prescribe inhaled nicotine products to help people stop smoking. There are just so many bizarre facts uh, about nicotine, uh, I, I just find it mind-boggling, and particularly in the medical community. I just don't understand why education to medical students on nicotine and the benefits of nicotine in helping people stop smoking are, are not provided in, in the medical curricula. Now, you mentioned um, some of your own work. Map out for us where the science that supports vaping comes from. I know academia, tobacco control, big tobacco, who are the players? The way that I see it is, is very little, apart from perhaps in the UK, where we've talked about how we have a very supportive academic community in the UK who are very pro-vaping, but very little ex-UK science to support vaping comes from academia. And I think there are a number of reasons for this. Uh, these are predominantly around funding, the greater use of Article uh, 5.3 of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, and I also think in, when you look at the United States as an example, I think that the inability of the U.S. government to disentangle tobacco and nicotine has added to this desire of, of people to uh, beat up nicotine instead of beating up tobacco. And, and so therefore you're left with the, the, the science that does support vaping and does support tobacco harm reduction. And that mainly comes from big tobacco, predominantly because they've got the financial means to do the science and conduct the expensive and time-consuming studies that are necessary. And we really shouldn't ignore that evidence. And I strongly feel about this because of the funding source. And I think that 
smaller vaping companies can do more. Uh, but of course, this is costly. And so therefore, I think that the trade associations that bring together groups of small independent manufacturers could be funding more research. And I think that regardless of whether it is a trade association or whether it is a a, a company which sells vaping products, I think you have to just put that to one side and look at the data. How is this really being conducted? Is it rigorous? Have they used the right techniques? Have they used the right populations of people to assess the effects that they're looking at? Did they examine enough people? Uh, did they uh, look for a long enough period of time in, a, in order to be able to see an effect? I think you have to look at those aspects of the science and forget about who funded it. You know, the, there are people's lives at risk here. And if we're making judgment calls based on who funded a particular study, I, I think we're doing those people a complete disservice. When you joined BAT, were you aware of Big Tobacco's bad reputation regarding its science? I, I wasn't, oddly enough. Uh, and to be honest, I wasn't even aware that Big Tobacco were doing harm reduction studies uh, at all. And when I joined uh, British American Tobacco uh, 16 years ago, they were publishing very little on tobacco harm reduction. So it wasn't something I was aware of. But, you know, when it was explained to me during the interview process, when I joined the company, it all made complete sense. If we remove the toxic junk from what people inhale and just leave the nicotine behind, there's a chance that we will help people switch to a safer, less harmful alternative. It's really not rocket science. And when you think about it, that's what the drug industry does with nicotine replacement therapy. And Big Tobacco is therefore, you know, just doing the same as, as what Big, uh, Big Pharma have been doing for decades, selling nicotine products to help people stop smoking. And everyone accepts that. We all buy or get prescribed nicotine replacement therapy, but yet nobody has been prescribed or advised to use electronic cigarettes. And I, I, I just think that's absurd, to be honest. So at the time, did you feel or were aware that you were at least supposed to feel like a sellout? I, I didn't. And that was perhaps uh, naivety on my part, uh, though it was very quickly made abundantly clear uh, when I started to engage with the scientific community. And I've had fingers prodded in my chest at conferences and people asked, uh, you know, why do I do what I do and how can I do what I do and sleep at night? Uh, but I'm really just interested in helping smokers by providing them with something that's not going to kill half of them. Uh, and, and I think with that, from that moral standpoint of wanting to help people who have yet been able to help themselves or have yet been able to get help from the medical community, I, I see the work that I do as very beneficial. So can the science coming out of, you know, big tobacco, the tobacco industry regarding tobacco harm reduction, Today, can it be trusted? Absolutely. And, and I, if I'm honest, I don't understand why the same arguments that were being used decades ago, such as they're just lying again or they're trying to hide things, are being used today. And from my own experience, I've never seen any evidence of big tobacco or smaller manufacturers hiding data. And so I, I just strongly refute the idea that you cannot trust data from big tobacco or from vaping companies. But it's still an, an argument that's used very commonly to beat the whole industry up. And, and I said this earlier, and I, and I think we have to look at this from a smoker's perspective. And regardless of who is selling it, or regardless of who is doing the scientific studies to show the benefits of switching to a vaping product, if something has a chance of saving someone's life 
we should be advocating that they use it. And I don't think the smoker cares uh, who sells them the product that could save their lives. All they care about is that their lives have been changed and their lives have been potentially saved and their own life and their family's life are, are, are better off for it. Dr. Fearon, describe for us the nature of the scientific debate over vaping. Is it professional, cordial, truth-seeking? Uh, I, I think no, no, and no is is my answer to that. You know, I, I, I get my, my work criticized, and, and most recently it's been criticized in the press based on not what I did, but who paid for that work to be done. And, and I, just, I just find that as an, it's, it's an easy target. You know, they, they couldn't find any fault with the science that I conducted, but they didn't like the conclusion that I, I made. And therefore they, they looked at what was bad about the study. And the only thing that they could find that was wrong was the funding source. Uh, and, and for me, that's not professional, that's not cordial. I wasn't asked for my view to input. Uh, to to respond to that criticism, uh, so so the answer to, the, to those three things that I I think is no, and and I wish strongly wish that it was more professional, more cordial, and I think the big thing we're missing here, and and maybe this is a pipe dream, of you know why can't we just get around the table and talk about these things? Why not put ideology and funding sources uh, and morals behind ourselves, and let's put all the data together and see how we can help smokers stop smoking, see how we can help prevent a billion people from dying this century. Uh, But it seems that we can't put all of those things to one side. Yeah, it's strange because the people who use that argument, uh, that attack, don't ever seem to be concerned about where the funding is coming from their side. It's always just the one issue. So I guess government funding is fine. I guess Bloomberg funding is fine. It only seems to be funding from industry that's a problem. I, I, I agree, and that, that's certainly the the, the impression that, that you get when when you work uh, in in the tobacco harm reduction industry. And I, and I think one way of looking at it, and, and I've heard this several times, is that everybody has a bias, regardless of you know who their funding source is. Everybody has a bias based on that funding source. Uh, and, and we should acknowledge that, like you say, on, on both sides of the debate. Are you and other researchers attacked in the media over this issue? I, I have been recently in, uh, in, in the media, and, and this was a new thing for me, and, and it came as a, as a complete surprise. Uh, and the attacks, as I say, were on who was funding the work that I do, not how, how good a quality was the work that I'm doing or how rigorous had I conducted the, the studies that I published. And that's a concern to me. You know, I, I'm more than happy to uh, enter a debate with somebody based on the study that I have done, because any criticism I receive can only uh, serve one purpose, and that's to improve what I do in the future. But if you just uh, use the missile of it was funded by Big Tobacco, there's really not much I can do with that. Regardless of who paid me to do the work, I would still find the same thing and publish the same uh, conclusions. So for me, the, the the funding sources are relevant. So in a way, then, isn't that um, a mistrust of the scientific process? They must not fully be bought into the scientific method because that very method is supposed to be completely agnostic to opinion and prejudice. It, it is completely. And I, and I think in that particular example, 
uh, I, I tested the hypothesis. I found out that the hypothesis was not correct, and that's the the, the data that I published. And and if you look at how science is being used currently, and, and Clive Bates has a very uh, fancy name for this. He calls this confirmation bias, uh, and that's that. The the idea of science is is that we're meant to prove ourselves wrong. And only when we've tried an exhaustive number of times to prove ourselves wrong and not been able to, may we think that we might be correct. But we'll never know for sure, you know, where we're using the right tools, where we're uh, looking at the, 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 the uh, issue in the right way. So we'll never be know for sure. Maybe maybe the the tools that we needed haven't been invented yet, and we need to invent the tool to to look at that, test the hypothesis in a, in a better way. But that isn't how science is being done at the moment, and I don't think it's restricted to vaping science. I think we see it with climate change science, nutrition science, uh, etc. And it, and it stems from this deep rooted, I think, human desire to prove ourselves right, which is a, a you know a means of self-validation. And how that plays out in science and in vaping science is running studies to prove hypotheses rather than test hypotheses and to try and prove yourself wrong, which, as I said earlier, is how science should be conducted. Dr. Furon, now Clyde Bates on our show just in December made a very strong point that um, well, if if we can agree that big tobacco may have misused science in the past during the tobacco war years, well, what's going on now? Because is tobacco control not the one that's generating doubt, manufacturing doubt, so to speak? So the question is, is uh, tobacco control now the new big tobacco? I, I think there's, you know, certainly at least partly some truth in that. And when I look at the some of the science that's coming out of some of the, the academic laboratories where they don't use the right controls or they look at vaping and say that vaping causes uh, damage to lung cells, but they don't use cigarette smoke as a control exposure, you know, or they uh, heat the e-liquid to temperatures far higher than you would see in uh, a, a modern vape. Uh, or expose animals to humongous amounts of vapor and say this this animal you know develops a disease process because of that you know i i see so many uh examples of poorly conducted studies and and i and i look at them and i think well you know these scientists have been trained on how to conduct studies and we all know every study needs an appropriate control both positive and negative but that's not being done so why is it not being done and i can only assume that it's being done to uh, confirm a hypothesis and to demonstrate that vaping is harmful. So there's kind of an, an ulterior motive which is being introduced into the conduct of these scientific studies by scientists who do know how to do proper scientific studies. Uh, and, you know, I, I honestly think that's deceitful, publishing that data, uh, issuing a press release, putting it on the front of a tabloid newspaper in the UK is deceitful and it's harmful to smokers and it's harmful to the general population. So, so I think, that, as I say, there, there is a certainly a, a, a good degree of truth in, in what you're saying, that, that some of the tactics perhaps that Big Tobacco were accused of using decades ago are now being put into play by, by the modern tobacco control community. Dr. Furon, are public health programs designed to nudge people towards better solutions? Are they justified? 
I, I certainly think that they are, and I, I've done uh, you know a certain amount of work looking at this whole behavioural economics issue of nudging people towards better alternatives. Uh, and you know, we look at the, the the classic example of putting fruit next to the cash register in a school canteen to get kids to choose uh, an orange instead of a chocolate bar, and that's a great way of nudging them towards a less harmful alternative. Uh, but we don't do that with. Uh, with vaping products, I, I don't believe. And certainly when I look at some of the things that we're considering in the United Kingdom uh, in the in the government consultation on vaping, and the government is asking the question, should we uh, put vaping products behind the counters uh, in places where they are sold? And I just, I, I can't imagine how that is going to nudge people towards a less harmful alternative. Let's put vaping products next to the deadly cigarettes behind shutters in supermarkets and expect people to buy them or expect people to believe that they're less harmful than cigarettes. It, it's almost the opposite of nudging them. It's nudging them towards cigarette smoking or to the belief that, that vaping is equally as harmful as cigarette smoking, which just is not the case. Could we see in the UK flavor bans? I, I certainly think that we could. And, and again, I, you know, I've done a lot of uh, work writing white papers for companies on the, the use of flavors in vaping products. And the, the reality is, of course, that kids like flavors. They like fruit flavors. They like candy flavors and dessert flavors. But there isn't a switch that flips in somebody's mind the, the day that they reach 21 years of age which immediately flips them to preferring a tobacco flavor. So for any smoker, they also will prefer flavors, fruit flavors, dessert flavors. And we see that in many of the scientific studies that have been conducted. And I think the problem is with a number of these studies is that they've been conducted by manufacturers. So the data isn't trusted. It's not seen as being independent enough. So we have to disregard the data. We can't use it. But I think we have to look at that data and say that there has to be a way that we can allow smokers access to flavored vaping products and stop kids from using them. There's technologies we can use, age verification systems. Companies are developing chips in vaping products which connect to people's mobile phones and will only allow them to be used in the presence of that mobile phone. So somebody can't buy an electronic cigarette and give it to a kid to use. I think there's enforcement that we can do to prevent re uh, retailers from selling vaping products to kids. I think there's so many ways that we can attack the kids using vaping products, including vaping, uh, flavored vaping products problem without affecting those that actually need the help, the adult smokers. When a person turns 21, should they not have the right to pick up a minor little nicotine habit using a vape, uh, even if they were never a smoker? I mean, absolutely. And, and there's a lot of talk about beneficial effects of nicotine and, and social effects of nicotine. It's relaxing effects, it's anti-anxiety effects and, and, you know, using nicotine as a as a social drug. Uh, and, and I think, I, uh, to be honest, as a scientist, I just don't see enough evidence right now for, uh, for me to kind of condone, if you like, the social use of nicotine. Uh, but there is potentially a role for nicotine in society in much the same way as there's a role for caffeine in society. But I think we need more science to examine that and to examine whether or not that's harmful, not only now, but, it, but in the future for the, for the never smokers that do start using vaping products. 
Dr. Furon, you will be hosting a workshop on independent science at the Global Forum on Nicotine, the annual conference on safer nicotine products and tobacco harm reduction. GFN 24 is coming up again this June 13 to 15 in Warsaw, Poland. Let me ask you, why is an event like GFN important and what could attendees expect from your workshop? I, I strongly feel that GFN is very important. I've attended it almost every year since it was initiated, uh, almost 11 years ago now. And, and I think it's just a place for learning the truth. Uh, and a place where people openly talk about the pros and cons of tobacco and nicotine use uh, and try to seek solutions to the, the problem we should all be concerned about putting an end to, to cigarette smoking. And, and so the, the idea for an independent science workshop was really to open up this debate around criticizing the funder, but not necessarily criticize the science issue. And really, you know, maybe look for a, a solution to that problem. So in the workshop, we're going to look at questions uh, such as, is anybody independent? You know, regardless of who is paying for our science, are we all not influenced by the funding source? If a study is paid for by the industry, uh, but conducted independently, like a, a third party clinical research organization, is that independent or is it dependent on the funding source? Do they, you know, do they feel they have to find what the funder wants them to find, which I don't think they do. Uh, but I think in somebody's eyes, they, they see that as the, the case. And I think the biggest question I want to answer, though, is does all this really matter? You know, if we look at the Public Health England reports, the NASA report, so many other government consultations on, on vaping and cigarette smoking, they've all included data from tobacco companies, from vape companies. So, so does the, the, the source of the funding actually matter? And as I said earlier, I really think we just need to open ourselves up, look at ourselves as uh, public servants. Scientists, to me, are public servants. And we need to really look at the world through the eyes of a smoker. And do we really care who has paid for a study if it helps change that smoker's life? Dr. Furon, COP10, the Conference of the Parties for the WHO's Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, is coming up next month in Panama. If you had an opportunity to send a message to delegates there, what would that message be? I, I think it's a very simple one. Don't listen, but look. Uh, it really is that simple. And I, I, I say that because those in charge of setting global policies that have the potential to influence the lives of a billion people should do a little less listening to those who, who are trying to advise them and do a little bit more looking at the science, reading the studies, making up their own minds as to what it means. I, I, I strongly believe that delegates at COP should have at least a rudimentary understanding of the science and be able to uh, peel apart the scientific studies that have been conducted and make up their own minds about what's better for smokers. Uh, I, I'm not overly optimistic that that, that will happen. Uh, but in an ideal world, I think that will be the case. The, the, these policy setting agencies should be looking at the data and not necessarily listening to all the noise around them. Dr. Furon, is tobacco control an ethical partner in the race to end smoking? I, I don't necessarily believe that is the case. And, and I say that because it's unfathomable to me that smokers are being denied access to potentially life-saving products 
or they're not being told the truth about the benefits they can gain by switching to harm reduction products like vapes or heated tobacco products. And I get the fact that there's an undeniable youth use problem at the moment, but we can solve that with technology, with regulation and with better enforcement. And I don't think we can continue to use the youth use issue as a lever we can pull to eliminate an industry that has the potential to achieve uh, what tobacco control wanted just a decade ago, the elimination of cigarette smoking on planet Earth. And you know, we've almost achieved that in Sweden where they're very permissive to harm reduction products like snus. And we've almost achieved it, or we're on the way to achieving it in the UK, and they're on the way in New Zealand. They've made great, made great strides towards eliminating cigarette smoking. But despite all of the scientific evidence and all of the examples of countries which are permissive to harm reduction products in reducing their smoking rates to record low levels, I, I just find it bizarre that tobacco control can't take the blindfold off and see that the end of uh, setting fire to plant leaves and inhaling the smoke is in sight. And it, and it really is in sight if we let vapes be, be continually available to adult smokers who want to stop smoking.